Welcome everyone to the Human Everywhere podcast, a production of Deep Space Predictive Research Group. I am one of your hosts, Jason Bott. Deep Space Predictive aims to look at the psychology and social connections of deep space travel. And Human Everywhere is a product of deep space. We want to remind and explore the very fact that wherever we go, we are human first. That space travel, with all the conversations about propulsion and energy and the technical details, we must keep in mind that it's humans that are exploring. That is the human experience that is at the core of space travel. My co-hosts today are Ubi Simonieri and Aliris Allman. I'll turn it over to them to introduce themselves and our wonderful guest today. All right. Yes. Thank you, Jason. Uh, I'm Ivaldo Simignetti, and very excited to be uh, a part of this podcast. And, you know, just to be able to have conversations with people uh, who are really doing just incredible things to help humanity not only make it into space, right, but, but to, to live there, work there, to, to survive. And, and ultimately, I think, to thrive. And that's, um, that's really kind of the focus of our, our podcast is, is that human being, that, that being a human, what that means in space, taking that with us wherever we go, even to these crazy alien worlds, you know, we're, we're still human. So thank you all for being here. Uh, Alaris, how are you? I'm doing fine. Good morning or good afternoon or good evening, everyone, however you're listening. Uh, my name is Alira Salman, and I'm the founder of Deep Space Predictive, and I'm so excited today to talk to our guest and continue our conversations about humans and the human experience in space, space travel, and preparing for that space travel. So today we have Munir Alafrangi, and Munir has been... Uh, an analog astronaut. And if you've been listening to our podcast, you know what that is by now, but everyone has had, you know, very different experiences in being an analog and their motivations for doing it and their experience during that part of the journey. So I'm really excited to hear about that, what Munir, what you're doing, and also the other research that you work with on the International Space Station. So welcome Munir and tell us a little bit about yourself if I haven't already, you know, taken up too much of that. Good morning. Yeah, thank you for the introduction. Great to be here. Um, I am the Commercial Innovation Manager and Technology Lead at the International Space Station National Laboratory. I'm a mechanical and aerospace engineer by training. I spent most of my years in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, and I did conduct a 45-day mission, uh, analog mission, under the Human Research Program, NASA's HRP, located in Houston, Texas, at the Johnson Space Center. Uh, this was under HERA, the Human Exploration Research Analog, uh, a study that looks at how humans can withstand isolation confinement, especially when you throw a few things at them and uh, the stressors start to compile. And then they study the change in behavior with respect to time. Happy to be here today. You know, talking about, you know, your, your background is, you know, technology and engineering. What was that experience, especially if the intent of HERA, and I'm speaking about HERA, is to understand, you know, human behavior in isolation and 
especially with the the task, the heavy task load that you have. What was that like for you as an engineer, knowing one that was the intent, but two, your own personal proclivity and the experience itself? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, the engineer in me uh, was always trying to um, try to connect with my uh, my state, be cognizant of how I'm feeling uh, mission, you know, mission day after mission day. Uh, try to identify the changes uh, and talk about the human fact, human factors. How are the instruments and the tasks and the things that I was touching and uh, working on and, and figuring out day in and day out affecting me? I am an artist. I've been an artist for most of my life. I am a fine artist. I, I do uh, mostly two-dimensional uh, uh, art images on, on uh, flat surfaces with dry media or wet media, a variety of things. And so the combination of the artistic side, along with the engineering side, kept my wheels turning day in and day out. I was uh, studying my interaction, identifying how things could be improved, asking myself, you know, when you're in 50 years, if this experiment was being done, how would this specific element improve? Uh, what would it look like and why? And, and then... The bonus question, obviously, would be, and what new problems would this solution bring? And then you're trying to compare the new problems with the current problems to see if it's worthwhile or not. And so I'm always investigating, um, how, how can this be easier? How can this uh, reduce me or someone else dropping the ball? Because when you're confined, you're deprived of uh, different sensories and you know, if you if you don't do well in a specific task, it will haunt you for a few days. And then if you have to do the task again next week, you'll be extra careful. You'll be a little nervous, uh, you know, and typically, uh, you know, analog astronaut missions draws, you know, the more uh, alpha type personalities that want to do everything perfect. They want to be the first and they're very uh, competitive. Um, and so, you know, letting. Uh, you know, doing the best work you can is, is always something at, at the, on your mind and, and you're always working towards that. So that's the, the long answer of saying uh, the, my engineering background had me talk, think about, uh, you know, how, how exercising could be, could be better. There, there was, a, I think, one, one or two spots in this 500 square foot or so structure we called Habitat or HAP for short, where I could stretch my hands up, stretch my arms all the way up. And, you know, you kind of look funny standing in the middle there with your, your arms stretched out. But something as, as simple as that really got you feeling a little bit more comfortable, got you feeling like you're, um, like you got this, you're managing this better. Because everything else or most of the other things that are surrounding you are continuously reminding you that this is not natural, this is not normal. You're, you're not in a natural environment that you were born and grew up in and studied in and ran in and learned how to walk or run or talk. Um, and, and so trying to make it as close to home as possible, I think, is, is important. And different engineering and artistic techniques can help us get close. 
it, did you find that your approach, I mean, was there a, a great difference between how you were approaching things versus everybody else in the analog? And, and what was that experience like getting, you know, <laughs> kind of, you know, starting to gel? I mean, because 45 days is quite a long time. Um, what was that experience, that interpersonal experience like? Yeah, that's a really, really powerful question. Um, you know, there are many different ways that you start thinking about the day when you're um, in isolation and confinement. You are thinking about yourself and how you how you you think that you are reacting to the stressors. You are. Uh, thinking about your colleagues, your crewmates, and wondering how they think you are handling the, the stress. And then you're thinking about how they're handling the stress. And then you're thinking about how they think they're handling the stress. So it really starts to get a little confusing there. Um, and what I learned is that everybody deals with it differently. Um, you know, sometimes somebody a crew member would wake up uh, in the morning and was fine. You guys had a great yesterday. The evening was great. You know, you, you know, high-fived right before everybody went to sleep. You woke up and, and all of a sudden the crew member is just, you know, ignoring you. Um, and you have to kind of figure that out. But that's going to stress you out because there are only three crew members that you're talking to the entire time you're there. I mean, you're speaking to MCC once in a while, uh, but you're not really having a human conversation. You're basically sharing tele telemetry or, you know, data, and, and it's very short and quick. And so it may seem like that person's ignoring you, but maybe that person's ignoring everybody because they just really missed their family that morning or they had a dream or something like that, but they don't want to disclose that to you. So now you're sitting there wondering, you know, if you did anything wrong. And so one thing that I learned is to continuously be cognizant of your actions, because even the little things could be interpreted as a much bigger than you, you know, much bigger than they really are, uh, and that can have a cascading effect throughout the day or throughout the week. So everybody deals with it differently. Everybody, I mean, we're all engineers. We all have engineering backgrounds at different levels. Uh, but still, you know, this really digs down into the human personality and how you can reach in within and, and decide to have a conversation. And perhaps, you know, when you do that, that could be beneficial. But uh, you're also being confrontational, whether you want to or not, by having a conversation about X that took place, at, you know, Y hours ago, um, or ignoring it and hoping it just goes away. Maybe it does. Maybe it just continues to snowball and build up. So what is the right decision? We don't know. And when do you have the conversation? Do you have it around meals? Um, some PIs in the mission suggested that um, having it immediately after a meal or during a meal, having a maybe a sensitive conversation. Uh, perhaps somebody is, you know, drinking your 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 share of orange juice or is using using your toothpaste and starting to, you know, annoy you a little bit. <laughs> um, you know, perhaps after a meal would be the best time when your bellies are full. And so there are little uh, tips that may help, but there's still the study's pretty young. There's still a lot of questions there. So the, the short answer is um, I tried to be cognizant that knowing that um, 
my reaction internally, I may feel, oh, I am very neutral. I am very friendly. I'm not doing anything wrong. But I had to be very careful because something that I may feel like, oh, yeah, I, yeah this can't be misinterpreted in a different way. Absolutely, it can when, when you're in isolation, confinement, and you've got a compiling amount of stressors. Wow. You know, so many things that you said in there. I am really, really curious about, well, one, this to me exemplifies and shares with our listeners, you know, the being in isolation in these conditions, when you're working with others, you're working with people, which is obviously what we're talking about, human everywhere. But the anxiety that you that you talked about and um, wondering, is it me that is causing this, this, this change in energy or this change in attitude, or just worrying about your presence to other people throughout the throughout the mission? How long did it take you to get comfortable either in knowing how you were presenting yourself or people were presenting to you where the crew as well got comfortable to where you felt like, okay, we are in a groove, whatever comes up, we know we can handle it. We know how to talk about things. Did you ever get to that point within the mission? Yeah, that's a an interesting question, uh, probably a, a topic within itself. So I think for the majority of missions that I've, uh, uh, you know, looked into, um, you've got an initial climb as the bond strengthens. And this typically happens with people that are, they love space, they're contributing to science, they're willing to put themselves through uh, this uncomfortable a uh, month and a half or two weeks or three weeks, whichever your, 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 how long, however long your mission is. Um, and so you immediately start to build camaraderie. Um, sometime for the 45 day mission, some literature shows that sometime around day between day 30 and day 35, maybe is the sweet spot. Um, that's enough time where you start seeing the residue of stress speak up. And that's happening to everybody, no matter how, how good you are at hiding it. And we're all very good at hiding it. You know, we're all feeling great and wonderful and you know, it's not bugging us. And again, it's because we, we want to make it look easy, right? Right, right. Uh, but then that's most likely where there was a conflict that's going to take place. Uh, that's when it would happen. And, uh, and so once a conflict takes place, it's it's almost like proof that oh yeah isolation time um confinement limitations on what you can and can't do uh the you know at that point you've studied you know your spaceship or your habitat inside out because there's not a lot of room to move around you know all the tasks you know all the engineering things that are most likely going to be thrown at you to to fix you've it's like you've watched all the movies in your DVD collection, and 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 you know you're you're starting to feel a little uh, bored, stressed. You miss your family. You can't talk to them whenever you want. You can't go for a run. You can't have external feedback on things. Um, you can't reset. And so you know all that's happening. How quickly can you bounce back off of a conflict when all these stressors are on your back? and be able to re-engage like you did before. 
That's a very good question. I don't know if it's been proven that that is possible yet. And I haven't surveyed all the missions and interviewed all the people. Hopefully you guys get to do that. But I know that um, the second half of the mission uh, typically isn't as colorful as the first half because you remove the excitement of, hey, we're heading to Mars. We're going to orbit Mars or we're going to orbit this asteroid or we're going to orbit the moon. We're almost there. It's getting bigger. You know, now it's done and you're you're returning. And so it's it's a little bit more uh, more boring, I, I would say. So it, it's a difficult question for me to to really answer that. Uh, I think uh, PIs that have been investigating this for a while would probably be a better fit to answer it. But from my eyes and as somebody who's been there, um, it, it's difficult to climb back up to the excitement that was there initially. Uh, but you still have camaraderie. You still are in the mission together. You're still looking to complete the mission successfully as a team. Um, it's just not the same as before. Oh, wow. That's, you know, one of the things you say, you know, how does someone bounce back from, from conflict or a situation or as, as you all get fatigued during the mission? And that is, you know, one of my areas of research is how do you come back from a conflict? Because we know it's going to happen. And then how do you support the crew in doing and, and making it through and knowing they can make it through is just going to look different? You know, like you said, it's not may, maybe not that excitement and glee, but now you're you have camaraderie, which may be stronger and different, but stronger. And that's what I'm hoping to do my research and support the crew on and and doing that type of um, assessment and training for for that reality that you just described. Yeah, I think that's a very important research, developing those countermeasures. I mean, that's that's not an easy thing to do. So I'm glad that you're looking into that. It's very important. It's very necessary if we want to do any deep exploration, anything in space. Um, we need to figure this out because it's a new it's a new area for human for humanity. We don't know how it feels like to to have you know four or five members. You know, in the middle of nowhere, millions of miles away from the closest celestial body. Not that that celestial body is going to be welcoming you with open arms anyway. Um, how, do you, how do you bounce back? Right. I think one one area to consider is how to um, artificially create a reset. And uh, right now, if I want to reset from something, I'll just take a few days off, you know, from the group that I'm interacting with. And I come back with a fresh mind and, you know, ready to move forward. Uh, but when you don't have that option, uh, because you're in confinement with the rest of them in a tiny little uh, area, how do you artificially mimic that? And, and would that be good enough? Uh, that's a question I would ask. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, in such a great segue because the, you know, the focus of your work, I, I feel like is, Helping, uh, helping guide us through experimentation, testing, um, conversations, you know, whatever it is to, to figure this stuff out. Can you talk a little bit about that, your work? Like, and then some of the cool things that, and experiments that you've, you know, been, you've been able to see and experience 
um, you know, through the ISS National Lab and and just just the work that you've been doing, because I I, I don't know that most people out there truly know like all the things we are trying to do to ensure that humans not only get to live and work in space, but can survive and actually thrive up there. Yeah, you know, you just uh, nailed it there. Um, you know, it's all about taking baby steps. That's what analogs do. Uh, that's what we do uh, on board the ISS in many different areas. We advocate that researchers start building uh, proof of concepts, make sure that they work here on Earth, then start thinking about, you know, how, you know, when you're in an environment where the vector of gravity has been removed, how's that going to influence your experiments? What kind of things do you to change or account for to be able to have a successful experiment because now without gravity, for example, I'll just use gravity as an example, but there are so many different elements there that make the ISS a unique laboratory. Uh, but without gravity, you could start thinking about or seeing your system react in a way you've never seen before. And the more variables, the more elements of your equations you start to remove, the more fundamental your system begins to look. And so you can now understand how it functions at a more fundamental level. So you deepen your understanding of the fundamentals of what you're working with. And now you can slowly start adding different layers of unknowns, perhaps, or things are a little bit more complex, uh, but you're starting from a stronger foundation. Um, a couple of things that I can share with you, obviously, if you go to the issnationallab.org website, and use our search um, option there. You can start uh, looking at different areas that have been explored so far, different publications we have. Two of the, two, two of the uh, projects that we supported, both uh, that came out of uh, the MIT team, were pretty interesting. One is called SpaceSkin, and uh, it's a fabric that imitates the human skin, and the goal was to measure and characterize uh, different impacts uh, that the spacecraft may experience in its mission. And so it's basically mimicking our skin. You know, if something punctures our skin um, or it's interacted with, with, with an element, uh, it immediately alerts us, right? Our skin, you know, tells us, hey, this just happened. And you can kind of identify what kind of impact it was, you know, um, it was a sharp or a blunt impact, uh, how, how how much damage is likely to have happened before you even look at it. And so they're trying to imitate that with a space skin that would go over the spacecraft to tell the crew inside the spacecraft, hey, there's just been damage detected by a micrometeorite, for example, or anything else, uh, space debris, perhaps. Um, so that's the first step uh, that they were looking at testing, uh, and they, they did that successfully. I think uh, the ultimate goal perhaps is to also start looking at how can the skin begin healing itself, just like our skin. So it sounds a lot like sci-fi, MIT is, is doing it. So very, very exciting read. If you just uh, type space skin on our website, you'll, you'll read all about it. And the next um, uh, project that the MIT research team was developing is testing smart fibers in space. And they're developing a piezoelectric uh, uh, fiber that's going to be uh, placed within the uh, astronaut uh, spacesuit. It's going to have a bunch of sensors. Uh, it's going to look like just a, your regular textile. Um, 
and that fiber is going to be sending electrical signals in response to mechanical stress, such as bending or moving around. So imagine wearing a suit where if you're working out, you're charging a battery. Um, that could be a lot of fun, right? But it can have a lot other functionalities. You know, when, when you start integrating the piezoelectric sensors into the uh, conventional fibers, um, you really start looking at uh, early warnings too uh, that are detected by the spacesuit um, uh, through mechanical stress. So if if, if something is 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 uh, pushing against you um, at a specific uh, you know, force, uh, it can alert you. But that technology can also be used to to charge a battery. So these are two. Uh, projects that uh, the ISS National Lab supported. We're really excited to see how far MIT pushes it. Jason was really excited um, to talk about that because that like, it, it's amazing, right? Like what incredible, and that's just two of the things that are happening. <laughs> yeah, we've got some exciting things. Uh, I would say the majority of the research that uh, comes through our doors and that we support and award looks at the terrestrial application as an end result. How can this help humanity? How can this help us communicate better? I, I mean, I don't have the greatest signal uh, today. Can, can this be improved? Can you have a strong internet signal anywhere in the world? You are anywhere in the world, in the deep oceans, you know, on, the, on, on the highest mountain. Can we do that? That's gonna help humanity. That's something we're interested in supporting. So. If, if the audience uh, have some ideas in, in how they can utilize the International Space Station to improve communication uh, in low Earth orbit and lower to the terrestrial uh, area, we're definitely interested in seeing what you have to say. But with the drug absorption rate and the drug effic uh, efficacy rate on human cells, tissue chip, um, stem cells, you know, these are definitely areas we're, we're interested in, we've been supporting. It's a booming area. We're seeing a lot of advantages that the uh, microgravity environment has to offer. Um, so it's definitely uh, the, uh, uh, as it's called, the decade of results for the International Space Station. So we're happy to engage with uh, with all the brilliant minds out there. I actually am curious about that phrase that you just said, the decade of results. Can you expand on that? Because that sounds to me like it's official terminology. Um, or is this a look back or is this a you know, a goal that you're like, we want to have a decade of results right now. Yeah, so the International Space Station um, had a human presence for the last 20 years. We've been doing all sorts of uh, a variety, I would say, a very diverse uh, area when it comes to R&D on board the ISS. Now, it's arguably humankind's best achievement. Lar you know, uh, you've got modules that were built uh, in opposite areas of the globe to meet for the very first time 400 kilometers in space by different hands, by diverse hands, by diverse languages, and they fit perfectly. Um, so if we can do that, we can do anything we, we set our mind to doing. Now it takes years for us to understand how this laboratory functions. It's it's breathing, it's living, it's moving. Um, and so it does take some time to, to figure that out. Um, the Biden-Harris administration extended the International Space Station uh, uh, to 2030. 
that's the information we have right now. And so this makes it the uh, the last decade, and um, we've understood a lot. We've grown a lot um, in the research, in the benefits. And so if we are going to be seeing results, this is the decade to do it. So how, um, as you're working and getting all these different types of experiments, what is the level of, in, obviously it's called the International Space Station, and the lab is being run here by the U.S. What is the level of international cooperation in both the experimentation and sharing of the results? Yeah, so, um, you know, we, uh, the, the ISS National Lab supports uh, U.S. principal investigators and U.S. companies, um, but that doesn't mean international entities, I would say, uh, can't be part of this as well. They can definitely join the U.S. entities and um, be the co-investigating uh, entity to send R&D in space. When it comes to sharing our results, you know, we we definitely advocate commercialization uh, as an outcome of the data or the mm -hmm. findings of the R&D. And when that happens, obviously, these are typically for-profit organizations that are looking to commercialize uh, an idea, a, uh, an operation, a process, a, uh, an object. Um, and so that really comes down to the organization itself, the entity itself, as it owns all the IP. We advocate they publish work, but uh, um, you know because this is because of the IP related uh, uh, issues, it, it is up to them to to share this information or not. Got it. Okay. Um, yeah, that that makes sense in looking at who your who your PI audience is and the opportunity that the ISS presents for their business and. Uh, their long the long-term out output and engagement with the research. Yeah, I mean we're here to support. Uh, we are interested in making this place uh, the, you know Earth a better place by utilizing the unique environment that the ISS is in. And we understand that commercialization is key in, in, in pushing the envelope forward. Definitely. And to add to add to that, the uh, the structure that we uh, award uh, groups, you know, it's uh, we we accept proposals. We are accept accepting proposals till August seventh uh, for the technology development um, uh, research opportunity that we currently have. Um, it will be evaluated. These uh, ideas will be evaluated, and if you are awarded, then we would cover the up mass, the astronaut time required to conduct the experiment, and the down mass. And then the organization keeps the IP. So it's a pretty awesome value proposition, if you ask me. Well, that sounds absolutely fantastic. I actually think that's a good place for us to kind of end up because I think that's really what's on the you know horizon for you. Uh, any final things that you're wanting to communicate or anything that you'd like the audience to know? Um, any projects that you're working on right now before we close out here? Well, going back to um, space exploration and, you know, doing R&D in space, you know, space is very, very difficult. Our up mass is very limited um, and rockets get scrubbed, you know, launches get scrubbed all the time. 
we, we have no control over the debris at this point uh, or the weather and safety is our top priority. We can't send everything and anything to space. So there are a lot of things that work against us, but the value that comes out of it is definitely a game changer. And so just because it's hard or something's difficult um, should not shy investigators away or people passionate about space exploration. And another example I would use is the uh, 45 day mission was very difficult. Um, you know, I missed my family so much. Uh, we got 30 minutes once a week to speak to our family. Every minute counted. Um, and, you know, we take this stuff for granted, but uh, just because it's difficult doesn't mean we should not do it. We should take pride in all the small and large steps that we take towards our goals, set those goals, and, and start taking your steps towards those goals and don't let anything stop you. If you're determined, you can do it. I could do it and you surely can as well. Thank you for having me today. Oh no, thank you for being here. We've appreciated it. This has been incredibly insightful and fantastic. And uh, on behalf of myself and the co-host, we wanna thank everyone that's been listening today. We wanna to thank our amazing guests for their contributions. And thank you all for joining the Human Everywhere podcast. Thanks everyone. Thank you. Thank you.